Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My guest today is Anne Wright, a diplomat and retired colonel from the US Army. Anne is also a peace activist and co-author of Dissent, Voices of Conscience, published by Coa Books in 2007. She holds a master's degree in law and a master's degree in national security affairs from the US Naval War College. In 1987, Colonel Wright joined the Foreign Service and served as U.S. Deputy Ambassador in Sierra Leone, Micronesia, Afghanistan and Mongolia. She received the State Department's Award for Heroism for her actions during the evacuation of 2,500 people from the Civil War in Sierra Leone. She was on the first State Department team to go to Afghanistan and helped reopen the embassy there. On March 19, 2003, the eve of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Anne Wright cabled a letter of resignation to Secretary of State Colin Powell, stating that without the authorization of the U.N. Security Council, the invasion and occupation of a Muslim, Arab, oil-rich country would be a violation of international law. Since then, she's been writing and speaking out for peace. She fasted for a month, picketing at the U.S. prison at Guantanamo, Cuba, served as a juror in Bush impeachment hearings, travelled to Iran as a citizen diplomat, and has been arrested numerous times for peaceful, non-violent protest of Bush's policies, particularly the war in Iraq. She's been on delegations to Iran and was in Gaza three times in 2009 following the Israeli attack on Gaza that killed 1,440 people and wounded 5,000 people. She was also an organiser for the Gaza Freedom March that brought 1,350 persons from 44 countries to Cairo, Egypt in solidarity with the people of Gaza. She was on the May 2010 Gaza flotilla that was attacked by the Israeli military and was an organiser for the US boat to Gaza, the Audacity of Hope, in the 2011 Gaza flotilla. She lives in Honolulu. Anne Wright joins me now on the line from Honolulu. Welcome to If You Love This Planet, Anne. Well, thank you, Dr. Caldicott. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, you've, you've had a fascinating life. I mean, you got a law degree, right? And then yes. you got a master's in national security affairs from the U.S. Naval War College, and then you spent 13 years in the U.S. Army and 16 additional years in the Army Reserve. Why? Why did you go into the Army, Anne? <laughs> well, like so many people in the in the U.S. United States, uh, the military is a vehicle that people use to get out of small rural communities, like I grew up in in Arkansas. Uh, they provide job skills other than just plain killing. There are some other job skills they provide, 
So I was using it more in terms of trying to get out of the state of Arkansas and go travel in the world, but not to go kill people. All right, so that's that's the valid explanation. Now, so you spent 13 years in the U.S. Army. What did you do? I want to know. <laughs> well, I actually spent a total of 29 years when you count my Army Reserve time. Most of it was in uh, uh, humanitarian assistance and civic action or political military affairs, uh, political analysis of, of what was going on in various countries and regions where I was focused by the military. Mm. Um, I was only in one combat situation, which was in Grenada, which was a very limited one, mm. thank God. Um, so I had one of the better experiences, I would say, if uh, if one were going into a military, that you weren't confronted with the it's a real dilemma of what, uh, you know, the the power and might of, of the U.S. government. Although at the same time, I will certainly say that I joined during the Vietnam War where, you know, the United States was bombing uh, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, um, and I stayed through the U.S. government's uh, uh, roles in Central America and Gulf War One. And it was finally in 2003 that I ended up resigning in opposition to Bush's war in Iraq. You know, I'm fascinated by the Pentagon. Um, I've just received a book about how the Pentagon fashions, molds and influences the films that come out of Hollywood. But it has its tentacles in almost every facet of American life, doesn't it? Well, I would say that's, uh, that's totally true. It is amazing what the Pentagon and the the defense budget, or war budget really, more accurately called, uh, gets involved in. You know, our our war budget uh, uh, is about 55% of the American total budget when mm. you add in all of the other types of things that are not included directly in the defense budget but are really part of the war-fighting machine, including nuclear weapons, which are... Uh, skittered away in the Department of Energy and a, a variety of things. The Veterans Administration that uh, has probably 20% of the budget of the United States uh, treating people who have been in the military. And we now have a n- new generation of uh, at least 5 million people who will be um, damaged for the rest of their lives. 5 because million? Of the, 5 million uh, from, from Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes. Good mm-hmm. God. And it's, I know because horrific. of their Kevlar be- vests that, you know, they can't, their bodies are protected, but they come back with horrendous head injuries and, and losing limbs, poor little things. Well, that's right, and losing their minds. Uh, yeah. Virtually everyone that has been to Iraq and Afghanistan has come back with what they call post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think is really, uh, it, it is what the mind has to reflect on what they've seen and done. It's not a disorder. It's actually the mind telling you what you've seen and done, and it isn't pleasant, and your mind's not going to let you forget it. And trying to provide uh, treatment for these these men and women who have seen and done horrific things is something that the United States government will be doing for the rest of their lives because it's something that cannot ever be overcome. And if politicians were honest about uh, this war stuff that they continually get us into, that they would they would immediately say, well, it yeah, it's worth the souls and 
and consciences of five million people that we go invade a country that's never attacked the United States or that we do this or that. And, uh, yeah, of course, politicians will never do that because that will mean that um, hopefully the, the, the people of their country would say, well, it's not worth it, you know. But let's really look at what the value is of invading and occupying countries um, uh, and, and the killing people, to killing people, killing you know, people. The, yeah, the fact murdering is the, them. The, murdering them. La- the Lancet, mm-hmm. which is a very respected medical um, British journal, has estimated that um, America and the Coalition of the Willing, which includes Australia and Canada and Britain, um, have killed, murdered over a million civilians in Iraq since the invasion, I think, the Bush W yeah. invasion. Mm-hmm. I just talk about genocide. It's and, and what gets me, Anne, is that people sit drinking their lattes in their Starbucks, you know, and very nice little wooded areas in Seattle and wherever, like the Germans sat drinking their coffees as the Jews were carted off to concentration camp six million of them and this is a million innocent people being killed by the most horrendous weapons that man has ever devised i and and you know i i often think about the good germans you know the only way evil flourishes is for good people to do nothing and and why weren't they angry why did they yeah they said well we saw the cattle trucks we didn't know what was in them yeah, we saw the smoke coming out of those chimneys at the concentration camps. It smelt sort of funny, but we didn't know what it was. And it's a sort of similar dynamic, it strikes me. And do you agree with that? Oh, I certainly do. In fact, I wear, uh, it, you know, if, if you don't have something to put on your chest to wear to remind other people every day of something that's going on in the world, then... I think you you need to look around at the great variety of social issues and start wearing T-shirts. And one of my one one of the ones that I always wear is uh, "We will not be silent." What actually comes from the days of the the Nazi mm-hmm. roundup of uh, the Jews in in Germany and other parts of uh, Europe, and that "We will not be silent" is is so important because we have to stand up, we have to speak out, we have to try to educate other members of our societies and it's it's really tough because for the United States of course the the um, administrations democratic and republican have um, undercut the social outrage that would be coming out from a war that being the draft they have privatized so many military uh, positions uh, and military support functions that um, uh, there's no draft, so the average American doesn't really face mm. the the the, uh, the fact that their kid may get drafted into this military, and then they would have to choose: is this war good or bad? Am I going to protest it? Am I not? Instead, the privatization means that these these uh, men and women who are civilians get paid three or four times the amount what a soldier does. By the U.S. government. By the U.S. government. So at the moment, um, the people that go into the military, usually poor people like where you came from in Arkansas, so they need to f- get themselves going again, and, and that's a good way to forward their education. Or they're private firms, in, in fact, mercenaries, and there are more 
people fighting now in Iraq and Afghanistan in private firms, mercenaries like Blackwater, than there are in the U.S. military, right? Well, that's that's absolutely it. We've the U.S. has drawn down to fifty thousand U.S. military in Iraq, but they won't say how many private contractors right. are there. It's obscene, and we know that there are well over a hundred and I think twenty thousand. Uh, U.S. military in Afghanistan, and mm. there are at least seventy to eighty thousand private contractors Hills, that are there. Bills. Yeah, so seventy so times it, more private contractors than than military soldiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's all part of you know the military-industrial complex that uh, is part of the great uh, supporters for war. There are certain politicians, and then there's a whole industrial base that makes its money from war. So they are always encouraging administrations mm. to go ahead, go oh, to I war, know. You know, I know. fight it out rather than talk and it out. And it was Cheney and Rumsfeld who started all this private... Well, I mean, it was going on before, but who really got it going, wasn't it? They they privatised everything it, and then they used 9-11 to be able to, um, you know, get private firms into um, all sorts of policing and and uh, protect, so-called protecting the American people. Do you want to talk about that too, Anne? Surely, yeah. It's, it really started in Gulf War I back in 1991, 92, 93, when um, George Bush was president, Dick Cheney was Secretary of Defense, and uh, um, that's when the privatization of military functions really began, and then it continued under Clinton, and then it really got a giant boost uh, under George Bush II, when Dick Cheney was vice president and Donald Rumsfeld was secretary of defense. And uh, well over, I, I would estimate, half of the functions of the U.S. military uh, were privatized in a fast-moving train where there was no a no-bidding process for um, um, multi-billion dollar projects that Halliburton, where Dick Cheney was formerly the CEO, got multi-billion dollar contracts to support the U.S. military. So it's um, it's really an uh, outrageous uh, and dangerous uh, path that America is on, where we've, we put into the private sector the ability to wage uh, war uh, and to really prosecute war, and that we've created paramilitary units like uh, Blackwater, DynCorp, Triple Canopy, that really are mercenary groups that are for hire throughout the world. It's really deregulation of killing, isn't it? Absolutely it is. That's a that's an interesting way to put it, but it is uh, putting out there the fact that uh, the United States, it, it's not state sponsored. Well, the United States does sponsor state It's paid sponsors. for, paid for by the state. Uh-huh. But, yeah, what, then, but then we're talking about what I want to get on to is, you know, this incredible deficit America's got and everyone's on about the deficit and stuff. And, and jobless is just probably 20% if you count the people who aren't registered, um, who, don't re- who are sick of registering as being unemployed. So it's probably about 20%, almost equal to Spain now in America. And America spends over a trillion dollars a year on killing. If you spend a million dollars a minute, you would not, you might have almost got, since Jesus was born, you might nearly have got to a trillion dollars. And I don't understand, Anne Wright, why the American people take this lying down. They're so flaccid and passive. Why don't they rise up and say, we've got to stop killing, we've got 
that money is ours. We want it back and we want it for our jobs, for our children, for, you know, to, to save the world from global warming and, and the like and the like. I, I don't understand. Can you tell us what the dynamics are that allow the Americans to be so passive in light of this really wicked dynamic? Well, if I had the answer, then I would have the cure. <laughs> uh, we have been trying so desperately to mobilize people, to get people out on the streets, to get people to be outraged by what's happening to them. I mean, I have a niece that's a teacher in Houston, Texas, and she gets paid a piddly sum and getting paid less every year because the, the state of Texas has no more education money. Uh, the federal government's programs in education are, are being cut, cut, cut. She's making less now than she did 10 years ago, and yet for for young women like her trying to get them mobilized to say, um, you know, you, you've got to stand up for yourselves. You've got to say that these kids are important, that, that kids are more important than killing other kids in other countries, and trying to get her mobilized is, it is so difficult. Really? Is she used to kind of passive? Maybe she's depressed. Well, I think that in one way they are kind of depressed, and they they won't really recognize. They some of them are very ideological minded, and that they truly believe what the government says, oh, do whether they? it's the Democrats or oh, the Republicans in power. Oh, it's <sighs> horrific. I mean, and trying to ask them to to think on their own two feet, to look rationally at what's going on, and to be willing to take some action. And they've got enough money that they. That at this point, even with four dollars a gallon in, uh, for gasoline, which for America is outrageous, for the rest of the world it's what you you've been it's paying nothing. forever. But yeah. here in the U.S., well, we uh, pay more. Yeah, yes, I can imagine. But here in the U.S., to for dollar uh, for the gasoline to go over four dollars a gallon is just like unheard of. And yet we can't get people to mobilize around gas stations and oil refineries. We can't get them to get out on the streets in Washington, D.C., although we're on October 6th, we'll have another big mobilization trying to, uh, to you know, stop business as usual in Washington, both in Congress at the White House and all the lobbyist groups and the big corporations that are headquartered in Washington. We, we keep trying to, to mobilize and to have events to uh, give a foundation so that uh, people's outrage can be uh, presented to our policymakers, but um, it's hard to get the people out. And then uh, what is so startling and dangerous, in my opinion, is that it doesn't matter which parties in power, they aren't listening to the people. Mm, they just no. aren't listening to the people. Well, no, no. Um, my guest today is Anne Wright. She's a diplomat and retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a peace activist, so she's a fascinating person and she's had incredible courage to do what she's done. Um, okay, so what, what, what got you going on your activist, so-called activist path, Colonel <laughs> Anne Wright? Well, after I resigned from the U.S. government in 2003 in, in opposition to the war in Iraq, um, the, the the next phase for me was, well, you know, you've had all this background in the government, mm. but you've never had any background in activism. So I was kind of sitting back um, wondering what I was supposed to do next. And mm. fortunately, uh, a lot of activists from, from the communities of uh, Stop the Wars and, um, you know, Stop U.S. Bases Abroad started getting in touch with me, asking if I would speak. And over a uh, the next year, I slowly worked my way kind of into speaking 
um, publicly um, and sometimes kind of dramatically uh, against policies first of the Bush administration and now um, against policies of the Obama administration. So it's it's kind of a follow-on that if you if you and, and it wasn't like when I was in the U.S. government I believed everything that all the eight presidential administrations before uh, which for whom I've worked, starting with Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War. I didn't believe all the stuff that they were putting out, but you know, when you've made your mind up that you're going to uh, work for the government, retire from the government, and all that, which was kind of my aim at the time, uh, you learn to put up with a lot of stuff. Uh, but um, finally coming out of it, um, I do have a lot of stuff that I can put out there sure. to, to to talk about how decisions are made inside government circles and that indeed citizen activism is very important and it can it really can influence mm. some types of government decisions. Mm. So are you popular? Do you get a lot of invitations to speak, Anne? Well, I do. I seem to be uh people are are willing to listen to what I have to say. Uh, they may not agree with all of it, but I stay on the road about uh I'd say Two-thirds of the year, I'm out scooting around the America and parts of the world. Um, uh, I think my background with so much time, almost three decades in the U.S. military and then a decade and a half in the, in the State Department, gives me the, mm. the, the, you know, at least I've got a background. I've worked in the government, I'm, uh, and people, they may not agree with the way that I I'm coming out on things now, but they do show me the courtesy to listen to me. Well, if people want to contact you to to, to give a speech or do media, how can they contact you? Mm-hmm. Well, if they go to our website for our book, Dissent Voices of Conscience, and the website is voicesofconscience.com, mm. then uh, they can contact me through there, and I'd be glad to respond. And I'm always looking for new places to speak. Okay, so now you went to Guantanamo. um, You picketed there, but do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, that was back in 2006, and we took a delegation to Guantanamo. It was was a bit difficult on one level because, of course, the U.S. government doesn't want that type of group coming from the U.S. to go to Cuba to protest U.S. policies in Cuba. But we made it there and had quite a bit of publicity about our protest out the the back gate of Guantanamo. We had with us uh, a fellow who had actually been in Guantanamo, and he was one of the first ones, a British citizen that had been released. And a movie was made about his time there called The Road to Guantanamo. And then we had the brother and uh, and mother of another fellow that was still in Guantanamo, Omar de Gaius. And... uh, so it was a very powerful, powerful trip where we were trying to um, present to the more of the world and to, of course, including our own citizens in the United States, the travesties that were being done in Guantanamo. And as things have progressed in 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, more and more information we found out about how many of these people were were uh, detained or imprisoned for no reason at all and have been released. Mm. And at this stage here in 2011, after two years after Obama said he was going to close Guantanamo, and he hasn't, we still have 175 people 
uh, that that the Obama administration, following on the heels of the Bush administration, say these guys are too dangerous that that anyone can ever know what they did or how but we found out why, what they did, okay, which of so course is a dodge. Why on earth has Obama had not had the guts to close Guantanamo, Colonel Land Wright? Oh well, because he is unfortunately he's not what he portrayed himself to be during the campaign. Mm. I think so many people, including myself, I mean, I was not about to consider John McCain as the next president, and uh, although I didn't work on the Obama campaign or anything like that, I I voted for him mm. because I, I felt he was a, from what he was saying in the campaign, other than the fact that he said he was going to increase the war in Afghanistan, which he certainly has, but the rest of the stuff I thought, well, this is a refreshing change from eight years of Bush, but he has been. Um, he, I think he had he had all sorts of um, uh, things in his background that we didn't know at the time. I mean, it turned out that he was he's called the father of nuclear energy for in uh, Illinois because uh, as a state senator there, he was always push, pushing for that. There were a lot of um, contacts and liaisons that he had that. We didn't really know during that campaign. Mm. And unfortunately, he's not been a man of conscience and conviction. He's not been willing to stand up to the pressures that every president gets. And certainly he knew coming in with with the platform that he came, that he, he um, campaigned on, that he was going to have tremendous pressures uh, on him. And, I mean, that's why people pushed to get him elected, because we thought that he could withstand those pressures. But he didn't. And uh, as a result, we are stalled right now. In fact, in some ways, we're worse off under Obama than we were under Bush. Which on, ways? on the issue of uh, wiretapping, on the issue of whistleblowing, he's had more investigations of whistleblowers than even Bush really, did. Really, so, really. Yeah. It's been a real disappointment. Well, you know, and the other tragic thing, Anne, is that it's not just a disappointment for Americans. Because America is the most powerful country in the world in terms of weapons and ability to blow up the planet and kill millions of people. And and so what happens in America has just vast ramifications throughout the world. And I don't think a lot of Americans appreciate really what their global planetary responsibilities are. Would you say that? Yes, I would certainly say that. And as you mentioned, the, the whole issue of you know, the weapons of mass destruction and the the U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons program on World Peace Day, uh, September 21st, the United States of America is launching an intercontinental ballistic missile on World Peace Day. It's like, what in the world are you guys thinking about? How could you possibly do that? I mean, it's like the arrogance of power personified. And when uh, Obama, given a, uh, no, the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, when he hadn't done anything, I mean, he'd barely been in office 10 months, and the, the Nobel Peace Committee gave him this Peace Prize for doing nothing, and he and he talked about war and the he necessity did. for war. He did, he did, yes. Oh, it's just outrageous. I mean, it just... Yes. Um, oh, it... it but the problem is that while we were able to get a lot of people out on the streets to protest George Bush and his doing this sort of stuff, because so many people worked for Obama as the first African-American president and, you know, all these sorts of things, they've been very um, hesitant about coming back on the streets mm. to protest the issues, the very same issues that Bush and 
and um, Obama are twins on. So our our great challenge in the uh, activism world is trying to get people to come back to say you can't look at the person. You've got to look at what the policies mm, are. That's right. And you've got to come on the streets because you are being uh, you're being you know your graves being dug by these policies. Bamboozled. Bamboozled. That yep. that um, test they want to do on World Peace Day, December the twenty first will be launched from California and it's going to go to the Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands. And in fact, I've just done a program that was played recently about the um, nuclear testing that America conducted in the Marshall Islands from 46 to 57, I believe, um, and how and 67 hydrogen bombs were blown up there and how people are suffering cancers and all sorts of ghastly diseases. And and the American government is virtually taking no responsibility for what they did. So they're still, as, as well as taking no responsibility for these very sick people, they're launching a missile towards Kwajalein Atoll. Now tell us what this missile is about. What is this test about, Colonel Anwright? Well, the, the test is a part of... Uh the overall global U.S. Uh, missile defense policy. And what is the uh, missile defense policy? What does that mean? I think, well, I think <laughs> it means that the United States uh, wants to keep the capability of, of, of firing intercontinental ballistic missiles at any uh, uh, country or entity that it believes is its enemy. And it's still a first-strike capability that... Uh, at any time, uh, these missiles can be launched with multiple nuclear warheads that can decimate uh, hundreds of thousands of people with with each uh, each one of these missiles. And there's a there's another level of it called the missile defense uh, strategy, which is uh, smaller missiles, Aegis missiles that are put on uh, 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 naval destroyers. And in fact, I just came back from South Korea, where the uh, South Korean government has been bamboozled by the U.S. government to uh, put a new naval base, create and construct a new naval base on this very wonderful little island south of the mainland of uh, South Korea, South Korea, called Jeju Island. It's it's a kind of a tropical island, and it's called the Island of Peace and the Island of Women. And they've decided that they will build a new naval base that will have. Uh, 20 vessels, including two submarines, but the Aegis destroyers will be there. An American and naval this, base, American yeah, naval base. all on behalf of the United States Navy. So we were there to stand with the villagers who are daily battling to stop the construction and are going to jail daily for uh, challenging the South Korean government's decision to go along with uh, the U.S. missile defense strategy. Yes, it takes my breath away. <laughs> Such absolute arrogance. So um, we, we need to describe, I think, clearly what the situation is. America's got about 1,200 hydrogen bombs on what they call hair-trigger alert, um, which only take half an hour to go from launch to land, mostly targeted on um, Russia and China. And Russia has a similar number or maybe more ready to go with the press of the button that take half an hour to land on America. And of the 
22, 23,000 hydrogen bombs in the world. Russia and America own 97%. And uh, a computer error or a hacker or a human error or any such thing could in fact launch a bilateral nuclear war that's over in an hour and we're all dead from nuclear winter. Now, the brilliance of Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Electric, Northrop Grumman have decided that um, if Russia launches first, then America needs to be able to intercept the missiles mid-course or towards their destination, and that's what, the, or, or as they're being launched. And that's what missile defense is about. So you set up radar stations in Turkey and, and in Britain and all around to detect a launch of a Russian missile, and then you launch one of your Aegis missiles that are mostly on boats at the moment, uh, which will intercept the Russian missile going up into space, and it may carry three passengers or three hydrogen bombs, so you knock out three bombs in one go. Of course, it won't work because if Russia launches her her missiles, there are going to be you know hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of missiles all being launched at once, and so it's a pipe dream. Um, do you want to enlarge on what I've just said, Colonel Landright? Surely. Well, it is a pipe dream. I mean, this whole issue of using these types of weapons, which will ensure um, the destruction of the world. It's, it's just astounding that we still have these strategies that are being talked about by my government and the Russian government and um, the Chinese government to, to some extent, but... Um, and primarily the the Russian government and the U.S. government, mm, that we yes. still have this number of of weapons that can ensure the destruction of our world. You know, and one of the things that I'm so concerned about, this um, South Korean initiative to construct the naval base in, in Jeju Island, is that Jeju Island is, is a little bit closer to the Chinese mainland. Yes. And the the rhetoric that's coming out of Washington about the threat of uh, the uh, the Chinese military. Um, here the Chinese, uh, well, first the, the United States uh, military budget is larger than all the military budgets of every country in the whole world combined. And the Chinese, which is like one-third of what the U.S. spends, um, and although it does have oh, a large... Oh, less than uh, that. It's less than that. Less than that. I've only yep. got 20 missiles that can hit America, for God's sake. And 20 missiles, yeah. yeah. Uh, a large lands force that, of course, that's what the U.S. always says. You know, the, the so what? Of... You know, they're not going to invade <laughs> yeah. America. That's rubbish. Uh, isn't that the truth? But that's the, the rationale that they're using to say that we've got to have an even closer missile defense to the mainland of China. Is because that so? Because China... of their large land-based military? Is that so? Yeah. Well, and then, of course, they say, well... You know, China has uh, constructed now its first aircraft carrier, and that is a strategic threat to the United States. Well, the United States has had, I think, 14 aircraft carriers for the last 30 years. Yes. And it's, uh, uh, every, well, the other part of it is that, of course, the, the Chinese government holds the majority of the debt of the United States. Yes. It is the greatest exporter of all countries to the United States. And really the threat from China to me is that if they stop sending us stuff, we'll be naked in a year. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that we can produce anymore because our, our government policies are really driving our own um, 
businesses uh, out of Offshore. business. We yeah. yeah, we don't we don't make our own clothing anymore. We don't we don't do anything except no, you make weapons. Like trade and you make stock. weapons. That's what you do. You weapons make weapons and, stock. and you trade and trading in stock is gambling. So you gamble yeah. and you make weapons. That's about it. I don't That's know. a dangerous combination. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. I want to know, Colonel Anwright. What you you were in the military? You must have known generals and all all the rest of the higher ups. How how do these characters think? I mean, what what's what's the pathology within their brains to to develop these policies of of, of annihilation? What, do you have any well, insight? Indeed, yeah, it is a pathology, and as people stay in the military a long period of time, and I admit that I did that, although 13 years on active duty and 16 in the reserves, so at mm. least during, when I was in the reserves I was doing other types of things um, as a civilian, so I got a little bit more of a civilian perspective on things. But it really is um, it's a pathology of how you protect your own um, profession, and oh, profession. a profession of war needs to have war. Oh. And so you're always cooking up ways, and and you have a group of people that many of them are alpha. They are they are proactive. They want to earn their money, is the way they say it. So, so they're very we, sort of testosterone laden, are they? Yeah. Can you and feel whether that? It's, uh, men or women? I mean, I'll admit to while I was in there at at times. I mean, there were there were projects and programs you work your heart out for because you get part of this this. Uh, uh, community that uh, um, after a certain point when decisions are made, then your job is to implement them. And I must say that it took me long into my life before I finally said I will not implement policies of the United States and, and uh, resigned. But I had spent a whole lifetime in, in the government implementing policies, um, uh, a lot of which I didn't really agree with. Um, and I would try to kind of move away from the most things that, that I didn't agree with and find other things that I could live with. But overall, it was contributing to this whole um, military um, dominance, really, of, of U.S. foreign policy. So and it to, becomes a pathology. It really is. to keep. It's really to keep your job and to work out more sophisticated ways of killing and to develop more enemies like China, which in fact supports America's foreign debt. Um, it's, it's madness, isn't it? And, and what I don't understand is why people are not writing about it or pointing it out or talking about this pathology, um, Colonel mm-hmm. Anwright. Well, it uh, it does take um, a while to get uh, your voice heard. In fact, just today, I just got an email back saying that one of my articles uh, has been now uh, is going to be published in a U.S. military newspaper oh, called good. Stars and Stripes that's yeah. given to uh, U.S. military outside the United States. And this article is about uh, WikiLeaks and the role of, of whistleblowers and the need to fix the problems and not the whistleblowing, that indeed there are plenty of things that we as citizens need to know about and, and military people need to know about, about how they've been bamboozled by politicians and senior military uh, in believing some of the stuff that comes about. So it is a responsibility of those of us who have served in the government to write about the, the, uh, the things we see wrong with it 
I've done a lot of writing on issues of uh, military uh, industrial complexes, of um, specific personnel issues like sexual assault of women and men in the military, where one in three women while they're in the U.S. military are sexually assaulted. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, in the last figures that we have from uh, uh, 2010, of the reported uh, sexual assaults in the military, uh, 10% of them were reported by men. So, so the are, men are being these sexually These are some of the things too. that we have to keep um, keep talking about, although I will uh, certainly acknowledge that the number of people that are writing from firsthand experience of um, having been in the military and the State Department um, are... Uh, are not enough. <laughs> we need I know. more. And I want to talk about this sexual assault thing. It seems to me the way they train soldiers to kill, and it goes throughout the whole Pentagon, is to remove their feminine aspects, their sensitivity, their right brain, intuition. They make fun of women. They call them what they they make revolting innuendos about women um, and, and some of their marching s- sort of slogans are, uh, are revolting sort of stories about women and so the men in order to teach them to be killers and we saw this in Heavy Metal Jacket that wonderful film by Stone um, you remove the sensitive part and then and then women become enemies or they become something to be denigrated and violated and sexually assaulted. So it's almost inevitable, it seems to me, as an outsider, that women in particular would be sexually and physically assaulted in the military. It, it, did you see that, Colonel Landright, when you were there? Well, when I first joined the military, that less than 1% of the people in the military were women. Yes. And... Over the time that I was in, it, it rose to be about 15%. Yes. And during that time, we saw an ever-increasing number of women that were being uh, sexually assaulted, raped yeah. and sexually assaulted. Uh, it turns out that now that from statistics from our Veterans Administration, that probably that figure was going on while there was less than 1%, but those women were not reporting it at all. Mm. and. Here they are now, 60 years old, and they are finally coming forward to the Veterans Administration and telling what went on back in the 50s and 60s. Really, um, but it is—it certainly it is an organization that is trained for violence. Mm. However, one of the aspects of it is that that it is—it um, is an you, you train people for violence, but you you should be able to distinguish. Uh, between violence toward somebody that is, you know, your state-sponsored violence toward whatever the administration has designated as your enemy uh, versus your own uh, colleagues, whether they be women mostly or men uh, to some proportion. Um, what it really is is criminal acts being committed and uh, the chain of leadership and command not uh, uh prosecuting the people who have committed these criminal acts. Why don't they? So, Why don't they? Well, because it's the old boys' network, and that uh, uh, because it's 99.9% are men uh, doing this to, to women and other men, and some of them are in the chain of command themselves, and so they're being protected by the leadership. And it's been the hardest thing in the whole world for us to get senior leaders in our military to even acknowledge this this uh, horrible uh, criminal uh, you know what, wave Anne? of violence. It, it's like the Catholic Church. Well, it is. Yes, 
You're right. Everyone protecting each other. It's Mm -hmm. (laughs) and whereas in normal civil society, anyone who raped anyone would be put in jail. Right, and here in the military, the first thing is well, uh, first we don't believe you, but but even if we did, uh, that's a sergeant, that's a lieutenant, that's. You know, the guy has a wife, a child. He's in the chain of command. He'll lose his career. Isn't that and you're sick. just a private. You're just, you've been in a year or two years, and <sighs> we don't even believe you on this. That's so sick. Well, it is. And we have, in the last five years, we have uh, gotten uh, a lot of writings about it. We have gotten a lot of publicity, and we've gotten a class action lawsuit filed against the Department of Defense. So finally, we're getting senior leadership of the military who are finally saying, although you got to see some actions on this, not mm. just statements, but mm. at least the statements are saying that they are, you know, they recognize the problem and they're going to do, they're going to hold leaders accountable for what their um, subordinates do, which will be a major change. Um, but still, it is a, it's a violent organization and young men and women who go into it need to uh, realize it's just not the, from patriotic fervor, you know, that sort of stuff, that they need to recognize that there's violence on many, many levels. And if you, if you um, aren't, uh, that indeed not only may you have violence uh, wrecked upon you by people that, that uh, protest your invading and occupying their lands, but you will get some violence uh, from Men and men in your own units that are just doing gratuitous violence because they can do it. Oh my God, it's almost authorized violence, isn't it? Um, well, it is. It's, it's, the way the history is, it's, it's really been authorized violence, and that's why we're we are working so hard to get it unauthorized, and that it is not an accepted part of military life. I can remember when Gloria Steinem. You know, this ERA and equal rights and stuff. She proposed that women be in the military. And I remember thinking at the time, my God, that's so totally inappropriate and goes against what women really are about, which is about oxytocin, which is the nurturing hormone, um, which is, is, is secreted not just when women have babies or during labor, but in times of stress, Women secrete oxytocin, which nurtures and protects and, and, and produces conflict resolution. So it goes against our very physiology to be in the mm-hmm. military. Did you feel that, Anne? Well, on one level, I mean, I could... The, the, uh, I think what Gloria Steinem was actually talking about was more on the opportunities of um, yeah, that the military afforded you after you got kind of got through it, you know, know, the GI know, Bill and stuff like that. Yeah. But but if you look at other forms of uh, our government service, just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to use those nurturing skills for the betterment of humanity. Mm. If you look at Madeleine Albright, oh, Secretary well, that, of State under you, Clinton, I, I agree. 500,000 Iraqi kids killed, and she's uh, for under sanctions uh, yeah. and blockades by quarantined by the United States on Iraq. And when she was asked, well, is the death of a half a million kids in Iraq worth it? And she says, yes. Yeah, I know. And, it, and, and Geraldine Ferraro at, said she'd press the button and uh, Hillary Clinton was belligerent too. And you can name a few women and, and Thatcher being one of the worst, but that's only a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of the well, number of women of the in the world. Well, one of the challenges is being a woman in government and 
being able to hold the line yes. on all that stuff. Yes. And that's, that's uh, we haven't really had women who, well, we do have. In our U.S. Congress, we've got Maxine Waters, we've yep. got Barbara Lee, we've got some women who have been totally against these wars in Afghanistan yep. and Iraq and who have submitted legislation, who have been the out-of-Iraq and out-of-Afghanistan caucus, and they're the ones that have kind of shown that side of, of women. Uh, but I'll tell you, when when women decide to join the military for not to kill people, but just to get the benefits uh, later on of the GI Bill and, uh, you know, that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. it's so easy to get sucked into the whole uh, propaganda and the, the whole um, um, pathology of, uh, of the military that, they don't. They do, really don't question what's happening, and by the time they get out of it, as they're they're damaged from all of mm. it, then it's just trying to pull their lives together um, oh, afterwards to survive. And uh, all in all, it's it's not a it's not healthy. And I speak uh, quite frequently in high schools throughout the country, talking about um, you know military service and to. Uh, alert uh, women and men in these high schools that it's not it's not all what it's cracked up to be. And I get in there because I'm a, a retired colonel. But I'll tell you, when I leave there, uh, sometimes I don't get invited back to these schools because the principals are just aghast that somebody has spoken out against uh, the military Is that and so? what the military does. To how people. do how do the kids respond then, Colonel Anne Wright, to your message? Well, it's very interesting because the first question I ask the kids, you know, I'm introduced, oh, here's a retired U.S. Army colonel, 29 years in the military, and she was here, there, and yonder. And so my first question to them is, uh, well, how many of you all are thinking about joining the U.S. military? You know, it's uh, tough to get a job out there, and I know it's, so, you know, a lot of you don't have money for college. How many are thinking about uh, joining the military to get education or whatever? And in these rural communities, at least half the kids will raise their hand. Oh, dear. And, yeah. And then I Can go into all of this mm. and uh, uh, talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And at the end of it, and pr- particularly for women, uh, when I say, well, now that I've told you all of these things about sexual assault, about post-traumatic stress, about traumatic drain injury, about, you know, the foreign policies that have put our military into these uh, these wars, how many of you all are really thinking about now joining the military? And virtually no women will ever put up their hand, and about 99% of the guys put down their hands. So all they really need to know is the truth. The truth. And, the mm-hmm. truth and no, nothing but the truth, so help me God, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you're doing some really wonderful work, and I, I so congratulate you. It's highly intelligent, highly moral woman, and we need more of you. Well, you're most kind, and there are there are a lot, although I'll tell you the ones that are, that are it's hard to, once you, you kind of get in with the government, whether it's in the military or the civilian side of governments, it's very difficult to to get people to resign or to pull out and then speak publicly about what their concerns are. And I do try to reach out to people to say, you know, it's it's not as bad as you're going as you think it is. And indeed, you're going to get support from people still within those institutions, both Good. in the military and for me, in the U.S. Uh, State Department, the Foreign Service. 
After I resigned, I got hundreds and hundreds of emails from people in both of those services saying, you've done the right thing. I wish I could do it, but I've got kids in college. There I've got you go. mortgages, but you're doing the right thing. Keep after it. Isn't that interesting? Boy, yeah, that's, it really is. that's such a model, isn't it? Well, look, I, I've been cogitating and thinking for a long time about writing a book called Why Men Kill. And uh, I'm just fascinated with the dynamics within the Pentagon at all levels. And uh, I wonder if you and I could sort of communicate a little about this to give me some material if I actually start writing. Would, would you help me? Oh, absolutely. I'd be honored to do that. I think that's a fascinating subject and it will, it's, it's well, well needed because it, uh, you know, the military really does have quite a reading list that it asks its people to read. And mm. sometimes the strangest things appear on that reading list. And and there, there's another um, smaller book that was written about 10 years ago on, it's called On Killing. Yes. And it, it ended up being on one of the military reading lists. So yeah. uh, a book called On Why Men Kill, I think will, uh, it may resonate in more sectors than you can ever possibly imagine. Well, I did write one in uh, 84 called Missile Envy, a la Freud. And apparently, all the generals hated it, but they all had <laughs> they all had the book on their bookshelves. So that was really funny. It's <laughs> well, it got on their bookshelf. They read it, and then they hated it. But they had to read it. <laughs> oh no, I think they just hated the title. <laughs> anyway, look, it's been an absolute joy to interview you, Colonel Anne Wright, and and I thank you very much for your participation in this program. And uh, maybe we'll talk again in in the future. Well, it would be my great honor. I admire so much what you've been doing over these many, many years on calling people's attention to the dangers that we've created for ourselves and are allowing our governments to wreck upon the world. So anything I can do to help, just let me know. Thank you very much, and thank you for this wonderful You're most kind. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Colonel Anne Wright. An author, diplomat and retired colonel, as I said, from the U.S. Army. Fascinating program, isn't it?
That song was Down by the River by Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Um, all right, more next week. Tune in again. Tell your friends, tell your, tell your relatives, listen. It'll stimulate their thinking, critical faculties and fascination and interest. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.